potential and possibilities, discussions with fascinating people, designing a better tomorrow for all of us. I'm your host, Ira Pastor. Welcome everybody again to another episode of our show, bringing you another really fascinating guest today involved in creating a better tomorrow on many unique fronts. Uh, today we have the honor of being joined by Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, who is the Chief Scientific Officer uh, for the Translational Research Institute for Space Health, or TRISH, at Baylor College of Medicine. She also serves at the Director uh, of the Applied Health and Performance uh, Division of Suffolk Synergistics. Uh, as the chief science scientist uh, of Trish, uh, Dr. Fogarty leaves a, a very innovative and high-risk research and technology development portfolio, ultimately focusing on addressing some of the most challenging human health and performance risk of space exploration uh, at Sofric uh, Synergistics, which is a, a woman-led and women-owned uh, human-centered uh, design firm uh, specializing in integrating human factors, engineering, and human health and performance into a business model. Uh, there, she's focused on developing and expanding uh, their portfolio and application of medical technologies for use in remote medicine, telemedicine, and home health care. And ultimately, in both roles, uh, Dr. Fogarty's goal is to help increase access to high-quality health care, empower patients and medical providers by incorporating these technologies of precision medicine, cutting-edge science and technology, ultimately with actionable data, both in uh, on Earth and out in space. Uh, Dr. Fogarty has over 20 years of experience in medical physiology and extreme environments and was NASA's human research uh, program chief scientist for many years. Uh, her approach prioritizes communication and collaboration with various industry, academic, government, and commercial spaceflight programs and international partners. Uh, she values and seeks collaboration with the various external institutions and government agencies, ultimately to address and assess fundamental and mechanistic discoveries, as well as innovative prevention and treatment strategies for application to preserve health and performance. Uh, Dr. Fogel he has a PhD in uh, medical physiology from Texas A&M, University School of Medicine, uh, her bachelor's in biology from down the road here at Stockton University, and is also currently an assistant professor uh, in the Department of Medicine at Baylor College of Medicine, an editor of Fundamentals of Aerospace Medicine, 4th uh, and 5th edition, and associate editor uh, for the Journal of uh, uh, Microgravity. We're honored to have her with us today. Um, Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, uh, thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Yeah, thank you for the invitation. Excited to be here. Great having you. Um, you know, I would love to start off uh, just a little bit, um, hear a little bit more about your sort of background journey, you know, starting out here at the Jersey Shore, <laughs> ending up in Texas, and, you know, a little bit of sort of those early days where you're at Texas A&M, focusing on cardiovascular research and development. Take us a little through that, those days, if you would, Jen. <laughs> 
it's a bit of a winding road um, and it should encourage anyone who isn't on a deliberate path at any one point in time that you can change course and find opportunities anywhere, which is really when I talk to folks about career planning, it, it is about keeping your head up and, and looking for some great opportunities and things that really where you follow your passion. Um, but yeah, it takes takes a little bit of willingness to, to take on some risk. So yeah, really, you know, Jersey girl at heart, uh, born and raised in South Jersey, Northfield, New Jersey. Um, you know, and I got a great education. So something I've been able to reflect on, um, you know, on the East Coast, um, very well, just even culturally, like, you know, the lifestyle and, and the, the academics that they had there, it, it really has served me well throughout my life. You know, some of the practical skills of interactions with people in large populations and the diversity of culture. Uh, my family was originally from New York City. My, my dad's from Brooklyn. My mom was from Queens. And we went back there frequently. And I just really uh, appreciate the, the environment and, and how it helped mold me, right? And the challenges associated with living with large populations and again, very diverse people. So, you know, given I had a, a great education and really kind of was always predisposed to medicine, right? I think from an early age, I could articulate, you know, wanting to be in medicine in some capacity, usually as a doctor. Um, but, you know, as you start to follow your course of education, it is interesting how whether it be um, right time, right place, or maybe not quite the right time, right place, how, how different routes we take. So I ultimately didn't end up going to medical school after I got my bachelor's degree um, from Stockton, which again, uh, reflect on really excellent education. And at that point, it was not Stockton University, it was Stockton College. Yep. Um, but, you know, as a liberal arts school, I have to say, people sometimes underestimate the value of the eclectic skills you pick up. Um, and some of the the problem solving that you have to do um, that that doesn't isn't, um, you know, kind of dictated to you. This isn't about memorizing stuff out of textbooks. This is about thinking. Right. Um, this is about creating solutions that don't exist prior to the question being asked. You know, so you, you've got some things to incorporate that are unique and think through kind of not only what are you trying to solve, and this actually ties into the human factors and human-centered design issue, but second and third order effects. You know, so we often want to solve one problem. And because we're so focused and myopic on solving one thing or the thing of interest, we are not looking around us and we don't realize we caused three others. You know, so how do you strike this balance of solving something but not causing other problems? And this is in the pharmaceutical industry, right? We say, okay, well, there's side effects and we just know that and we accept that. Yeah. And you're like, but should we? <laughs> <laughs> like, is that an acceptable trade, right? To solve one problem and cause three more and add four more drugs? Like, we're, we're a little into that right now, right? And, and trying to reconcile some of those. And later in my career, that became really important, kind of these these problem solving skills and, and people appreciate my practical nature. That's been part of what is, has been successful, you know, part of my ability to take on opportunities and challenges. So after Stockton, I started to look around and, and when medical school wasn't going to exactly be a direct entry, I was like, well, what are my other options? And I was always very interested in research. Mm -hmm. You know, how, well, how did medicine happen? Like who, who built the medical kit of the day, you know, and, and if we want it to be better, how do we go about, making things better. Mm -hmm. And so then I started to understand, you know, what was out there in the research community, went actually back to Stockton um, and was filling in some gaps, you know, like in terms of prerequisites, if you're going to go to med school or grad school, 
you know, my, my thing was primarily architected to be pre-med, but I realized there were probably some things that I needed to kind of bolster up academically. So while I was working for a year or two after my bachelor's degree, I went back and started taking some classes. But that was when I really found it important to talk to the professors. And I had real questions for them about life, you know, and about what, why did you become a professor and why did you do biochemistry? And, you know, what about physics? And, and so they all had very interesting backgrounds and they became a really interesting source of broadening my idea of, you know, what was out there professionally for me and aligned with what I wanted to do. How did I want to contribute? So medical research became my area of interest. And that's when I started applying to graduate schools around the country. I did have a preference for warmer climates, I will be honest. (laughs) (laughs) So I looked a lot in the South, Um, but I wanted programs that also incorporated exercise. At the time, I had become really involved in, you know, working at gyms that became, you know, something that was convenient while you're going to school and stuff. But athletics was always a part of my upbringing. And I, I really felt fundamentally that we have a lot of power to help ourselves, you know, and, and and not maybe have to engage in pharmaceuticals sometimes. So mm-hmm. what what can the body do for itself? And my family actually ended up moving from New York to New Jersey because of the FAA, the, um, the, the Federally you know, Aeronautics Administration. And so with both of my parents being with the FAA, like aeronautics and then the jump to aerospace wasn't a huge leap for me of mm-hmm. you know, thinking about humans in airplanes versus people in fighter jets and then humans in spacecraft where, they were kind of rolling around. I wouldn't say I was like a groupie when it came to space, but it was always one of those areas, you know, people who I was very interested in people who live at altitude and, you know, climb Everest, live in, you know, Boulder or um, Colorado Springs and the differences in how your body adapts. So all of those things were of great interest to me, but I always was like, again, very interested in how the human body regulates itself and how it can accomplish things when it's challenged. And then why does sometimes it break down? which is, you know, more of the pathology process. So when I was looking for grad schools, I was really looking for the opportunity to combine medicine with exercise, um, which isn't a foreign concept, but in the West, it's a little less engaged in deliberately, right? right? Um, it's, it's more Eastern medicine that says, you know, how do, we, how do we help ourselves and heal ourselves through our environment and our actions as a primary place to start? Versus we've gotten into a place and this has been an evolution of Western medicine where, you know, it is more you're going to go get some tests and we're going to determine what's wrong with you. And then we're going to, you know, either correct it through surgery or through pharmacology. And maybe we don't look at what ourselves can do first. You know, lifestyle factors come in, but it it doesn't tend to be the strongest. Um, and, And these are choices. You know, you can find doctors who practice medicine differently. And I encourage people to actually shop around quite a bit because of that. <laughs> I do myself. Mm-hmm. So that really led me to just down select to a couple of programs. And one of them became um, the, the medical physiology department at te- the medical school at Texas A&M. Yep. Um, they were also the cardiovascular research institute Um the gentleman who was leading the department at the time, you know, came from a lineage of education. This is like watching people actually be be trained by historians, people who have written the seminal textbooks, won Nobel awards. And um, it, it was a really great opportunity. It also, you know, from a practical point of view, the cost of living in College Station, Texas at the time was 
and still is re- relatively affordable and much more affordable than it was at the East Coast if you're <laughs> going to be a poor graduate student. So that, again, my practical nature kind of slid in because otherwise, you know, UC San Diego was on the list too. Mm-hmm. Um, but we all know that affording to live as a poor grad student in some place like San Diego was not as appealing. And to be honest, I didn't want to walk out of a PhD program with a couple hundred thousand dollars worth of debt. That that was not a good plan, even at the time. So I really had all those factors rolling around, ended up at College Station, Texas in that department, um, went in as a fellow. So got a nice little uh, stipend to be able to afford to live there and and be part of the department where now now you're essentially getting paid to do and learn how to do research and with some pretty great minds. Um, And it was a culture shock, (laughs) as you can imagine, moving from New Jersey to College Station, Texas. Um, But it it was it wasn't again, it was another challenge to overcome. And um, I, I really got a great experience. The other element that is there is actually the vet school, which is kind of a world-class yeah. veterinary facility at Texas A&M and did a lot of my work there um, and learned a tremendous amount from the veterinary community. And mm-hmm. now you're talking about understanding how we at times do use animals or are capable of understanding, you know, more about like mammals, you know, mm-hmm. at that level. Um, so it wasn't an extraordinary experience spending five years there. Um, and it is also how I made my connection to space. Uh, yep. One of my one of my committee members, Dr. Mike Delp, um, actually had a spaceflight grant and mm-hmm. had an experiment on Columbia 107. Okay. So Columbia was 107 was the one that did not ultimately did not return. So yep. I worked for him, and a group of us went over to Florida and worked at Kennedy Space Center in 2000, late 2002, 2003. And we were there for the launch um, and we were there the day it was supposed to land. Mm-hmm. And, you know, at that point, I started to understand a little bit more, you know, anyone who makes that type of sacrifice, you know, for an endeavor w- makes a big impression. Yeah. I was there um, to see the families not have their their friend, their family return. So we were at the landing strip and they were next to us in the grandstands because in that day, like, again, the shuttle landed on a runway like a plane um and that there's there was no cell service so most of us and cell phones were just not (laughs) as common in 2003 or as capable um but we're sitting there and you could hear what's called merritt island um calling for the shuttle and you're supposed to hear two sonic booms and then the shuttle should come into view and, and approach the runway and that just was not happening over and over and over again and we waited about 45 minutes i think and it was clear then um, some some military people were were there as they usually are because this is also Cape Canaveral, which is an Air right. Force base. And um, they whisked the families away on the bus. And it wasn't until we got put on other buses and were, were taken back to the administration building that cell phones started ringing and we found out what happened. Yeah. Um, so pretty much from there on out, um, you know, I had this insight into how I could contribute to what was going on in the endeavor of spaceflight, how my background and my skill with medical physiology, which really it put me in a position to understand underlying medical risk and do work that could contribute to a, a larger evidence base that says, not only can we understand this for astronauts who are doing this extreme thing and, and, and taking on this challenge, but it could we could also learn from them how the human body adapts and kind of unlock some secrets that we just can't get insight into here 
Um, so it's, it's in some ways, it's a model, a scientific model that you say, okay, we're going to take this organism and we're going to perturb the system in a really strange way to elicit a response sure. that could reveal to us pathways that we can't see because of the kind of convoluted nature of, of the environment we typically live in. So, you know, it's not unusual scientifically to try to control some variables and perturb others. And essentially space flight creates a paradigm like that. And when we send humans, it, it's an interesting opportunity to take advantage of that. And it's actually become um, kind of paramount, I think, with respect to the value of human spaceflight to take advantage of that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, along those lines, so, you know, as you were saying, you were at, at Texas A&M and I, you know, I was going through some of your your PubMed and, you know, you're, you're focusing on things at the time, like uh, vascular endothelial growth factors and, and, you know, how this affects uh, vasodilation and so forth. Um, Neuropillin 1, I'm not exactly sure where that fits in, but it, it, sort of all of these cool sort of uh, different transcription factors and proteins and so yeah. forth involved in vasodilation. You moved to NASA Johnson Space Center, and you know, so we're here in the cardiovascular system. And then I saw some fascinating pre well, two really two sets of fascinating presentations. One where you, uh, you know, sort of looking at the the dynamics of the space shuttle's engines and making some comparisons to the human heart. And here we're going to the physiological levels you were mentioning, you know, flow and sort of fluid dynamics and all that neat stuff. Obviously, the the human heart is this important pump. It does a lot more than just things at the cellular level. Um, ventricular assist devices and interesting tech, tech transfer that come off of that. And then also you start working in another very important human system, the eye, um, and start looking yeah. at edemas, the, the flattening of, of various parts of the, the folds in the, in the eye and so forth, things that happen once again when we send folks up there for long duration spaceflight. Talk a little bit about this, if you would, because I think, you know, we don't think the heart and the eye connected, but they're very similar in the sense, you know, obviously things happening at the, the genomic and the cellular level, but also at the, as you said, the complex physiological level. Yeah, no, you did some great work there. <laughs> was, uh, really and, <laughs> and what's cool about being a physiologist is, is you can be all over the place, right? Like it, it really was an interesting background and kind of aligns with my and and I'll get to your your question because it is fascinating and and there are so much to learn from the different organs and how they operate. But 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 I can't like promote physiology enough to people yeah. because it's it's a it's the systems engineering um uh kind of framework of the human body. Mm -hmm. You know, in, in the engineering community and building, say, a vehicle system engineering to kind of bring together all the pieces, understand how they're going to interact, like how do they function individually. But then when you put them in the same context and they have to interact and they're dependent, you know, their effects and affects, um, who's tracking all that? Like, how's, how does it end up working as a machine? And the human body is like the most energetically efficient machine known to man. We can't design one better. And it self-regulates to a degree. We don't even understand the sensor systems when you bring yeah. up like molecular, you know. And that's, we're just getting tools now to even get those insights. Mm -hmm. um, we just, we knew them before as like at an anatomical level and right. a physiological level. But, you know, as the microscope was discovered, people figured out there were cells. It wasn't just tissue. And then, mm -hmm. you know, we went subcellular. So yeah, it, 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 there were great opportunities at NASA to do cross-discipline work and get some insights to, from different people who had been working on things and saw the cross-discipline pollination and the benefits of it. So 
yes, definitely was always very cardiovascular driven and the heart being the central pump of the cardiovascular system. But those blood vessels are intrinsically intertwined with every tissue we have, right? That's how they're getting their nutrients. That's how waste is being removed. But they're not passive conduits. They're very active and they are responding to tissue needs. Sometimes what's really insane with exercise is those vessels respond to a need the tissue has yet to express. But because we have a cognitive awareness of a need, it actually trips off a series of events pre-event. Mm-hmm. So that's actually been something that on the exercise side, that the concept of just anticipating a need, your body already starts to change recruitment of capillaries to meet a presumed need of an exercising muscle, which is mm-hmm. usually people thought, oh, it has to become hypoxic first. Like it has to go to work, run out of oxygen, and then this other series of events are going to occur. More capillaries will get recruited, more blood flow will get there, more oxygen will be delivered, more CO2 will be removed. And that was the order of events that was presumed. It was shocking when people found that even before you exercise, if you, you know, given the ability to measure this, that these things were happening. So um, the other element is how the body uses these these tubes, your blood vessels, to actually kind of um, coordinate flow at times, because this will get relevant in a second with the space-associated neuroocular syndrome. And and in in the pumps, so your reference to the left ventricular assist device is replacing one of your large ventricles for people who are in heart failure. And it is either a bridge to transplant or ultimately it was also discovered that if you let the heart rest and you get rid of the, the problem, this, you know, the root cause of why your heart was failing, the heart can recover. That, and that was another just phenomenal, you know, recognized finding, I believe, by a Nobel Prize that, that, that something like a terminally differentiated cell like a cardiac myocyte could actually recover. That that was thought like once it's damaged, it's damaged. It's a permanent, permanent issue. So one of the the cool things was that they had to do for the shuttle main engines, all of this mathematical engineering work to get the fluid flow. Because in, in, if you watch any of like, especially the Apollo documentaries and the propulsion plates, you have to feed fuel continuously. And if there are any gaps or bubbles and you you get like these fits and starts where, you know, if you drive your car before we had, you know, different types of injectors, <laughs> like fuel injectors, like I'm the worst with carbureted cars mm-hmm. because I have no patience. <laughs> I don't like warm up <laughs> and it's a train wreck, but I'm like, I'm much better with, you know, nicely computer managed fuel injection that doesn't, doesn't stop any, you know, make sure right. that the flow is not uninterrupted. But your body does that by design. Yep. Your your body has uninterrupted flow to all the necessary tissues. And if it doesn't, you have a problem, right? And yep. you know, usually pretty quickly that you have symptoms of some sort, discomfort, pain, you know, um, lack of function for whatever yep. that might be, walking, thinking <laughs> at times. However, it was, if we're creating a an assist device, how, how do we make sure that flow isn't interrupted. And and they also were having problems with red blood cells getting destroyed in these turbine-like flow systems, where the shuttle had had figured out some laminar flow criteria that essentially what your body's doing with the capillary is lining up, it's kind of keeps on shrinking the the vessels. And so the cells kind of have to congregate and they got to start lining up behind each other. Mm -hmm. They can't go into it at a time and bump into each other. They got to line up. And 
you know, that was some interesting insights into using math and again, doing kind of systems engineering on a human organ. So now when we get into spaceflight, there's a lot of dynamic change with where fluid sits in the human body and where it's pushed and pulled. We don't have gravity pulling blood down into blood vessels of of the legs, the veins. And you start thinking about tissues and compartments, and there's a lot of equations that come into play when you try to study, well, why does fluid stay in a vessel versus when does it go into a tissue? And of course, when fluid comes out of the blood vessels and goes into the tissue, there's an amount that should be providing nutrients to the cells, but sometimes it's just extra plasma and that causes tissue swelling, Mm -hmm. right? And so like people at the end of the day, you know, if you've been on your feet a lot, you get that edema. You can see the prints of your socks. That means your your skin um, has been overloaded with fluid. So now it's a different size, but it's also like squishy, right? And it can be deformed. Um, but that actually happens inside your body as well. It's just not obvious, right? You don't see it. You don't see the marks. Well, when it came to spaceflight, you get this shift of a lot of fluid toward the head that normally wouldn't be there, right? Mm-hmm. Normally we're upright. So you get like a natural drainage system down, even seated, you get it. You get a little less of that when you're laying down. So we, your body has experience with getting fluid shift when you lay down at night. But again, we don't spend 24 hours, seven days a week some patients do, which is where there's a relationship with earth treatment here in spaceflight. But when astronauts go into spaceflight, it's a 24, seven, three, six, five, or how many every days are going to stay up, stay up there that this shift of some amount of volume that wouldn't normally be there is in the head and neck. And because we've, we've evolved in gravity, we don't have the same sensors above our clavicle because it hasn't been necessary. Okay. So when you go into spaceflight, when the fluid goes up above the neck, it's relatively unregulated. Um, and the, the fluid will leak out of the vessels into the tissue. So most astronauts, and we talk about it, you get puffy face. Um, most astronauts in flight, you'll notice that their faces are kind of swollen looking um, and their eyes are squintier because even their eyelids are swollen. Um, well, that's the obvious effect. Well, what about the inside of your head? Mm-hmm. You know, and that's one of the tissues that's impacted is your eye. And we're talking also about what may be going on with the brain. So then you start using those equations that talk about um, pressure differentials across the tissue bed. It says, why, why are we not getting outflow that, that um, you know, is equal to the inflow? So you have zero net gain of fluid in the tissue. There's, there should be no pressure differential allowing fluid to leak into the tissues. So we've got an outflow, we've either got an extra inflow problem and or we've got an outflow deficit. So now this, what's called delta P, the pressure differential across the tissue is getting bigger. And at some point there's a Starling equation you do, but it says when that when that pressure differential gets large enough, that fluid has no place to go but to leak into the tissue. It's, a, mm-hmm. it's like, it's gonna follow the path of least resistance. Um, and then that creates tissue pressure which now you get into a vicious cycle because the tissue pressure will impact the blood vessels that are embedded in the tissue. And so this is called compartment syndrome in your body that your swelling just will get, it's a vicious cycle of the swelling getting worse and worse. So now you've got to slow down the inflow and you got to help the outflow to get that pressure differential regulated again. So in spaceflight, the question is because of where the eye is in the cranium, it's really challenging to to affect inflow and outflow. Now you have to work at the level of the neck or below, right? You got to attack the problem in an area that you can actually manipulate flow and pressure. 
Um, so we've worked on different studies that actually use a lower body negative pressure device. Okay. Um, the Russians call it a chibis. And, and we have stuff like this on earth and, and it's for different reasons, but you can put someone in, um, th- these are pants, very large looking pants that are connected to a vacuum. And there's a tight seal around, say, the waist or like around at least the lower rib cage. And you can physically create a vacuum and act like gravity, not from the idea of you're loading your skeleton, but the idea of there's a sucking force and it can pull some blood down. And mm-hmm. they've looked at kind of by using tools like that. And there are some less um, complex tools that the Russians use. They actually use braslets, which are for, for the best analogies, like tourniquets that go on the upper thigh sure. and try to trap blood flow down in the legs. And those are all very effective to a degree. Um, but at some point when you're in microgravity w- without artificial gravity, you know, you're only um, kind of buffering this shift. You're never you're never going to uh, defeat it, you know, permanently. So the body is going to have to start to learn what to do with this fluid shift or we have to get a little bit more creative with affecting other parts of the system. So right now it's it's still very much in work of trying to figure out the inflow outflow issues. And, and the eye is clearly um, impacted, but so there, there are changes in the brain that we also have questions about, which means yeah. that the brain is making cerebral spinal fluid. Um, and in a way that it's, it's less responsive to some normal cues. Um, mm-hmm. So the pressure changes and we have a hypothesis that intracranial pressure is actually going up but that's yet to be actually demonstrated because the way you get that information is usually very invasive. Um, and when you start doing invasive procedures in something like space flight, now you're causing many other risks, which could be way worse than the problem you're trying to solve. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're trying to be a little bit more creative and that's where some commercial space and, and these space flight participants, these commercial astronauts um, are, are being actively engaged in that process. Let, let's let's talk about that because I, I know that you know we had uh, Samantha Weeks on um, several months ago uh, to talk about Polaris Dawn. You at Trish, uh, and you're, you're leading the initiatives at Trish, and you have you know uh, NASA, Caltech, MIT, but a bunch of partners involved here bringing together this consortium. And and per you know what what she introduced us to in terms of, as you were saying, the neuroocular syndrome studies, the, the venous gas emboli and so forth. Yeah. I was doing some things at the genomics level with regard to radiation. Talk a little bit of how Trish works with all, how this whole process works and a little bit of sort of what you do on a, a daily basis to interface with, with all these consortium yeah. members, but also the, the folks that are headed up. Yeah, sure. So the, yeah, the consortium is, is really interesting. So uh, about six years ago, well, even further than that, because they they had to propose together. But yeah, Baylor College of Medicine led the effort to develop a proposal back to NASA and um, MIT and Caltech were involved as collaborators, consortium members to say, we can bring these skills and capabilities to bear on what NASA was saying it had issues with, which actually was a, the human driven by the human research program, which I was chief scientist of mm-hmm. at the time. Um, so I was aware of why this cooperative agreement was being put out. And, and a, a lot of it was, and why I'm so drawn to it, is it was being asked to solve things in, in a more radical way. Um, you know, the human research pro- program, program itself, um, you know, has to deliver 
some solutions. So they tend to take a very conservative incremental route because these are ones like we can't just go with nothing. Right. We have to have solutions and those solutions actually need to be derived into engineering requirements. So the time ahead of a vehicle design, it, it could be a decade or more of where you needed to know what you were going to send, mm-hmm. you know, at, at least from a hardware perspective. So it, HRP has its job. We've got a construct with human system risks, but we definitely knew we needed an entity that could be um, kind of bring in some very radical different solutions because you're looking for something that's just going to bypass the current process. Like, you know, you can keep kind of modifying the known solution. You know, I, I could put a Band-Aid on it. You know, literally, there's lots of ways that you could process, improve a known solution. And some of these solutions have been around since the Apollo era. They're, they're, not, they're not breakthrough things. They're steady, reliable. Mm-hmm. They're known to be valid. You know, these are what the space program needs when you go into operations. You don't want to be testing the test. You, know? right. <laughs> you don't want to be sending up experimental hardware for something someone's going to need for real for the operation. Those sit on a payload side where you get to experiment, but they're not lethal. You know, they're not going to cause loss of crew life or loss of mission objectives. They are the science. But in parallel with the HRP and the incremental parale- uh, portfolio is Trish's intent, the consortium's intent, which is to bring all some pretty great minds together and say, are there different ways to solve this problem? And, you know, the the power that MIT and Caltech bring is the awareness of what's going on in the world in different sectors. So going back to like the... the comment you made in the, the article you found about the left ventricular, event, ventricular assist device, mm-hmm. you know, being informed by algorithms that were designed for the shuttle main engines, you know, the stuff that goes on, like, it, it not, we'll talk about MIT, but Caltech, was, that's where the Jet Propulsion Laboratory is. Yep. So these people have put analytic, analytic devices on Mars rovers, and they're doing science on the Mars surface. So when you, and they got optics out there. So what I'm interested in is like that cross discompollination of we got to bring some of what we do on the surface of Mars back to Earth and we're going to bring it to Earth to send it to space. <laughs> but mm-hmm. there's a lot of work to make it actually function in the way you, well, and to test, is it going to actually function in the capacity that we hope it would function? There's also some translation that has to happen because, you know, a lot of our medical system is dependent on wet lab chemistry. Yep. You know, you get get blood drawn, they look for biomarkers, they're going to run a lot of tests that require a lot of um, resources. You know, when you think about like the Quest or the lab cores, the, the size of the facilities and the reagents alone are, are just astronomical. Like the quantity, the quality, you know, and the regulation. We're not taking lab core and Quest with us to space flight and yep. we're not, we're not going to have an MRI. So now we have to start rethinking like, well, how would I observe this biomarker? If the back of the eye is the thing we need to measure and is our, um, you know, our canary in the coal mine for when someone's body is changing in a negative way in spaceflight, you know, so we use things like right now, ultrasound and ultrasound has been a really powerful tool for diagnostics in spaceflight, but it, it has its limitations, right? But where are we with um, even tools like EEG, you know, electrical, electric and encephalography and mm-hmm. measuring electrical activity of the brain, because there are different waves your brain is using to give signal, right? Mm-hmm. But we have to be able to like perceive the signal. And then math algorithms come into play, and you can actually reconstruct essentially an anatomical view of the brain using EEG now. 
like that that is happening that's happening at UCSF that's happening at Stanford that's happening <laughs> yeah. you know at, at uh, Caltech and what our consortium is really bringing is our ability to know and understand what's going on out in the world that n- no one person or entity could be aware of mm-hmm. uh, the amount of data that's pushed out like you know doing the research you did and when you go into a, a capability like PubMed if you try to read every paper that that comes out every day, every week, that's what you'd be doing full time, you know? So you need an yeah. army of people and then you need some like good machine learning and <laughs> like archiving and database um, accessibility that says, how do we start understanding what are the new signals? How are those signals measured? And and do those things align with the constraints of spaceflight? Or do we have to start, I call it like bend them. Do we have to say, instead of an experiment relying on a protein assay, we need people to build in a fluorescent capability so that when that protein is expressed, instead of literally measuring the protein, with this, which is usually done with a wet lab chemistry tool, I want that protein to fluoresce so I can use a microscope to see mm-hmm. it. Yep. Right. And then I don't need the wet lab chemistry. But the relationship between the gold standard, which is like the wet lab chemistry versus, you know, seeing it through the uh, fluorescent microscopy is is the evidence base we have to build if we think that's the direction we want to go to. And this is where you say, because of the constraints of spaceflight, we have to bend how we do our work so it facilitates what we need to know and what action we would take. I also think it's a way we get stuff to the ground and improve, improve healthcare equity. Mm-hmm. Because now you're talking about, we often drive miniaturization as well. So you're saying, and I'm going to use a lot of untrained users, meaning that astronauts and commercial astronauts alike, usually very smart people, very trainable people, but they can't be experts in everything. Um, And in some cases, that's, you know, humans are known for our tool use. Mm -hmm. Tools should do the job for you. You know, you shouldn't have to work really hard at this. It should take over, take the load off of that, off of you. So you can do the job you were there for, you know, um, so that's where the technology and Trish kind of comes in with the integration role. And, you know, in 21, when I stepped away from NASA, um, you know, and I really had appreciated, again, like everything I had learned during my career and all the the critical thinking skills. Um, but it was time to try something new yep. and not be as constrained as you are when, especially when you're a civil servant. You know, there are federal acquisition regulations and there are yes. <laughs> conflicts of interest that are not tolerated. And I, that's fine. Those are the rules and they're there for a purpose. But I wanted to step outside and get an experience base. And I actually left to be with Sofic for a while. Um, and I'm still with them, you know, as much as I can be. <laughs> so much of 100% you can give around. Right. Um, but, you know, I'm very passionate about what I want to do with Sofic and how we're going to grow that. But I got recruited to Trish in Baylor College of Medicine. And to get the opportunity to work with those consortium members at at another fabulous institution, Baylor College of Medicine in the Texas Medical Center, another, you know, global um, hallmark of medicine. It it is a fascinating place and um, I'm lucky to live near it. And we've had some medical events that that's been a very fortunate place to drive a half an hour and and access some of the best healthcare in the world. Um, But they're also minds that are very creative. So they, most of the institutions have global health initiatives. And so when you think about well, if I got to put something in space, it's got to be very rugged. And if I'm going to put it on the surface of the moon or Mars, it has to be very resistant to dust and contamination. It has a lot in common with places like 
India and sub-Saharan Africa mm-hmm. and potentially even our own Midwest or Alaska or, you know, Northern territories of Canada mm-hmm. um, where people aren't going to have pristine, you know, medical environments to do their work, um, but they still deserve medical care. Um, so that's what we've been doing at, at Trish at a high level. Now, the question about commercial space flight came up um, because Trish, wh- while I wasn't at Trish, they had started the expand program because the opportunity came up with SpaceX to support Inspiration4, which is the okay. first free flyer mission that was also led by Jarek Isaacman uh, yep. and his crew. And now they're moving on. He's he's come back. He wants to do more missions. And now his missions are called Polaris Dawn. Mm-hmm. Um, so the initiative there is to really offer science because, again, we do it in a way that people are consented. This isn't this isn't mandatory part of the event. This is if you're going into space, we need to know these things about humans. And we really like would like to know more about a diversity of humans, mm-hmm. you know, um, we also want to know about people and it's not so much about ethnicity even or age um sex and gender come into play but it, it's also about people who haven't been as well or we don't require them to be as well screened so like in the whole nasa astronaut corps or the european space agent canadian space agency and even uh the cosmonauts from russia you know it's a job like and you have to stay fit for the job and there's a healthy worker effect smart people they make good lifestyle choices they manage their health really well but it's a positive cycle with being eligible to fly for long duration missions of keeping your disease risk down, right? Mm-hmm. That you will not become a liability while you're on orbit and we don't have to fly more medical hardware just to have you up there. Right. But in commercial space, that's not the paradigm. You know, they want to fly people who probably have pre-existing disease and, you know, you're going to take a little bit more risk. We even have questions about, you know, indwelling hardware, people who have pacemakers, people who have insulin pumps, you know, how are these fluid dynamics going to affect some of your hardware or, you know, the electrical magnetic interference, the EMI that might be happening inside? Essentially, I, you know, when I give my talks, it's like you're not building just a vehicle when you're taking humans. Yep. You're you're building an exoplanet. <laughs> if you don't take it, it's not you can't get it out of nothing. Right. right. It's. No, you can get creative. We always talk about MacGyvering stuff, solutions, but that's, you know, piecing together solutions out of material you have. Mm. But it, if if you don't bring certain things, they're just not there. Um, so you kind of pr- got to preconceive. And a lot of that is probabilistic risk modeling because you can't take everything. You can't take an ER with you. You can't take a freestanding hospital with you. That's not there. The MRI is not there. But what can you take? But what do you really need? And, and that's kind of where the people part, the human-centric part. If we understand where people are vulnerable and where they're robust, we can make better specific choices about what any one mission takes with them. But the mm-hmm. question is, have you arranged the vehicle hardware interface in a way that you could do it in a modular sense, that you could change out the medical kit in a, in a meaningful way per mission? Because p- different people flying will need different have different probabilities of, of a disease kind of manifesting while they're there. Yep. And, you know, we learn a lot from even the Antarctic because that's another place where you have a lot of constrained access and people are isolated for many months at a time when they go down um, onto the ice. So you can run some scenarios through there, but, you know, again, there's, there's a lot of work that says how healthy do people need to be and what kind of, what is health? Health is a continuum. Mm-hmm. And maybe sometimes, 
things that we've considered on earth to be a disadvantage might become an advantage in space. And I know you probably saw the European Space Agency announced their astronaut class. Okay. And they, they have been very forward with um, discussing differently abled astronauts. And they had the class of para astronauts pulled in for an evaluation. And some of them, um, you know, have artificial limbs or they're, you know, uh, paraplegics. Um, and the idea is in spaceflight, are you, is function of your lower body absolutely necessary? You know, mm-hmm. um, and they've talked about people with degrees of blindness or hearing loss, you know, what, like, can we augment using tools to make it safe and productive for people like that to go? Right. Um, and what does it mean for them physically, emotionally, um, you know? Um, so Trisha is also in a position to take advantage of these opportunities because we're outside of some of the government constraints. Mm-hmm. Um, we do get federal dollars, but we also get non-federal dollars. That's an important part of what, what helps Trish and the consortium function. Um, but we're also a little bit more nimble. And it was actually negotiated, you know, to to do experiments on Inspiration4 was really the, the pathfinder that said, this is not only very doable, but it is productive. Right. You know, the results coming back are very interesting from the crew. Now that, and you know, the number of people who have gone are still pretty low. So I don't want to over-exaggerate the findings, but the, the science was solid. And I think it's going to tell us a lot about where if people thought, you know, for years, women were, you know, <laughs> told, you know, I, going back to the aerospace medicine books, textbooks, the history chapter always just blows me away. I mean, we can't forget that at one point they, women were told because they have a menstrual cycle, well, you can't fly during your menstrual cycle and you can't <laughs> fly 10 days before and you can't fly 10 days after. Well, funny how that's like 30 days a month. Yeah. <laughs> like you can't fly a plane. There you go. And, and the assumption like that, that these things are limiting or people won't be capable of doing things like we can do the work and we can know mm-hmm. we don't have to just suppose someone has lack of a capability. Why don't we test it? And, and commercial spaceflight is opening up that aperture of our ability to go get the data that that can be used to make fairer decisions about what capabilities are really necessary. And are people also who may not currently have the capabilities, are they trainable? And can we support them in a way that they become trained, become yep. capable? Yeah, that's a it's a fascinating portfolio, and and I just you know having read through all of it, I I know we're going to have to do a a couple follow up episodes. I know you're coming up against a hard stop at the end of the the hour here, but one you know one thing I would just love to touch on for a few minutes while we still have you, uh, you know, again thinking about these themes of a austere environment, uh, and then stuff we cannot send or do not does not exist there we you know the hospital is not there on mars we can't send the hospital to mars but one basket in your portfolio is this whole principle of advanced materials synthetic biology and ultimately what information we can send to make stuff there and um you know some of this and when it comes to sort of therapeutics on demand um it, it thinks back about uh about a year ago, I had Jeff Ling from DARPA on the show and, and his ideas of, you know, of zapping <laughs> uh, drugs to Afghanistan for the little machine that can print it out or whatever we need to print, whether it's functional foods or maybe a, a new heart at the end of the day. Um, talk just, uh, I know we don't sure. let you that much on, but talk a little bit about sort of some of the principles that excite you in, in terms of looking forward, whether it's drugs, functional foods, novel biomaterials that 
we can we can get there via other means. Yeah, now it's an exciting space, and that's one of those you know when you when you're reading my bio, <laughs> I was like, this is where collab. It's all about the collaboration, right? Because yeah. the work is really at the fundamental level of understanding what's real, what's doable, and not to say the future this won't evolve. I, I, I synthetic biology is just fascinating, mm-hmm. um, and some of it are. Are, have some real ner- near-term application, but again, it's not without its resource needs. So whether you're growing plants, uh, algae, <laughs> bats of bacteria, and these yep. are, and uh, leveraging off of the work DARPA has done, but you know, this is something we look at frequently, like where are they investing and what are the results are they seeing? Because there's an element here, and I'll try to be quick about it, is that any program, the human research program, Trisha's program, DARPA, and lots of DOD, other programs, you know, um, DITRA, BARDA. I mean, there's acronym soup all over the place of folks out there trying to find solutions for various reasons. And synthetic biology is popping up in in almost every one of them because it it has that potential. You can just, you know, see the potential, but we have to get we have to know where the potential is real, where it can be actualized and, mm-hmm. and, the, and understand where the, the limitations are, because that's also where work needs to be done, which could be more on the side of the engineering mm-hmm. capabilities. So um, yeah, our portfolio is relatively slim. So again, we ha- we have to be smart investors and going back to that is the Valley of death. Yep. Um, there's a lot of stuff that's tried that gets put on a shelf. Like, and what I've struggled with is the access to corporate memory. And I mean that in general sense, not just Trish sense of, well, well, between, and there's also NIAC, which is the NASA innovation (laughs) concepts, you know, NIAC has tried a bunch of stuff. DARPA, DARPA is well-funded and does try many things and they take it a little bit further. So they probably have a stronger corporate memory when they leave it off. Like, because sometimes we're, we're so far ahead of what's actually um, can be applied for the mission of the day. And, and so I, having worked my first like 12 years in the operation side, supporting space medicine, trying to give and bring a new solution to operational people is, is there's a huge cost there. And I don't just mean financial, like change is hard. <laughs> and it has a lot to do with, well, now I got to retrain. Is the training worth it? Are you really bringing me something of value when you do all the puts and takes? And that's the other part of, you know, human factors engineering and human centered design as a business model. When you say you may have a technical solution, but overall, what is the cost of development of it? But what is the cost of implementation of it right. to take away what I do now? How do I replace it out? There's so many features of that. And then the schedule and the budget. It was like, you have to triangulate across a lot of demands to say something is worth doing in operations. But when you talk about future operations, that's where HRP, the Human Research Program, and Trish sit a little bit more in terms of we're trying to inform the Mars effort. Mm-hmm. I, I think doing moon to Mars is is exactly smart because low Earth orbit and Mars should be our, or the moon should be our test bed mm-hmm. for the Mars effort. That's how we build the evidence base and reliability. The and I say, even with the International Space Station, the phase is utilization. Now we've built it. And so doing science and research and development on the space station is operations. Yeah. Right. So to engage people in that same with low Earth orbit and commercial destinations, like the operations are R&D, sometimes back to Earth, if we can make the case for it. But it's definitely for advancing human exploration of space. 
for the purposes, you know, that we can, we can discuss it on your podcast. Um, but I, I think there's a lot there now, synthetic biology, and we, we have funded some work, which I think is remarkable. And it was, you know, done by the people before me. So they had some pretty great insights. Now, my job is to take what we do know and figure out where I take it. What do I mature? So one of the ones that's of real interest, because as a use case, a sam- uh, an example, and I think it was what you were touching on, the idea that you could take plants, because I, I do believe we do need real-time plants grown with humans, not just I mean, nutrition, yes, I mean, no doubt about it, because it's it's going to be more nutritious when it's eaten, when it's fresh, versus something dehydrated and rehydrated and packaged and processed mm-hmm. and sitting in salt. Um, but people are, are very keen psychologically to deal with stuff that they have to tend, right. Mm. And, and have a relationship with your food, even if it is vegetables, like that's, that's been measured even on the international space station and down in, um, Antarctica, like as a very beneficial component of these long, you know, arduous journeys where people are not going to have access to anything that they had on earth, including mm-hmm. their family and friends and, and their meals of choice. Like when you've been stripped of most of your pleasure resources, you go after like, <laughs> we call it like Maslow's hierarchy, just some right. real fundamentals. But within growing plants, the work that this um, investigator was doing, Karen McDonald, she was able to alter plants while they were growing so that they could synthesize um, needed active ingredients from pharmaceuticals, nice. but it didn't change the entire crop. That was right. the beauty of it. Cause some people were doing, um, engineering on the seed level. So then the, the, whatever you were growing from the seed automatically produced, you know, what, what was the molecule of interest, but then you've always got that molecule, right? And when you're thinking about growing crops for food, for basic nutrients, and there are some reasons to do some genetic engineering that says vitamin B's are, vitamin B is very labile. It, it, it degrades very rapidly, even our food on earth. So we never have enough vitamin B. And if you're going to take tablets of vitamin B, it degrades too. So like, mm-hmm. that's not a solution for, for extended stays in space. So you need real-time synthesis. So you're like, okay, maybe if we grow plants, you know, engineered to have, it's just like, um, you know, fortified foods that we eat here on earth. But in that case, you were like, that kind of makes sense. But now we were stretching it and saying, I just, maybe I need acetaminophen. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I need, or I need another molecule that I don't need supplemented every day in every part of that leaf I'm going to eat, but I need enough for medication. And, you know, right now the packaging the way we take medication is exactly here. I, I say we do, we put some earth medicine in space. We're not really doing space medicine yet in a lot of the sense. So in order to do space medicine, you would say, oh, someone, and again, the turnaround time on this is still a little awkward with operations, but you know, someone's falling ill, they have some symptoms, the me- crew medical officer figures out, okay, well, they're gonna need a cinnamonifin. How fast can that plant turn it around? And maybe you need a little bit that you brought prepackaged to hold them over for three days until the plant starts synthesizing. Mm-hmm, and then they mm-hmm. start just eating the leaves, yep. you know, if you can quantify it and do all the right stuff to make sure it's quality and quantity mm-hmm. controlled. But that's where synthetic biology both can take it on earth, yep. right? Because that can be very portable. It can be very real time. Um, and it can be changed so that if it's not acetaminophen and it's some other you know, molecule of interest that you need to treat someone, say for, you know, malaria, um, that, that would be very interesting. 
like to, to backfill and then say, okay, well now I need three weeks of it. I only brought two days, right. you know? So I hold them over for two days. I get the plant started up and then the plant starts producing and takes over the job. And I didn't need to bring 300 pounds of pills with me. Yep. Um, that really is the idea. And, and there's a lot of promise there, but there's a lot of work that's got to go in to say that it is, it is a reliable, you know, concept that it can produce, it can, it, those plants won't be damaged. You know, again, we're not causing a second order effect we didn't anticipate, which is now that the plants were altered, they, their crop, you know, is fails or, you know, it's one third the amount of, of calories than we had before because, right. you know, they're shorter in stature or whatever it happens to be. So those are the problems that have to get to work through to really make it implementable. But it's one of the most exciting opportunities that I think multi, you know, the multi-agency investment is really important. And then, yeah, we do have to wrap up, but we, we should pick up the next one on tissue engineering yep. Yep. <laughs> and organoids, which is another area of work that I think is going to change the world. Yeah, um, I, It's going to change medicine. Completely agree with you. That's where I was going to go next, but I know we we can't now. But we will definitely yeah, right be now. doing that follow up episode. Uh, and again, for everybody going to be listening in this particular episode on the podcast network or watching on the YouTube channel, again, you've been listening to Dr. Jennifer Fogarty, Chief Scientific Officer, Translational Research Institute for Space Health, Baylor College of Medicine. Also check out uh, Suffolk Synergistics. Uh, Jen, I, I want to thank you for taking the time out of the schedule to come educate us on some of these themes today. Obviously, thank you for everything you're doing there at Trish. And as we like to say on our show, thanks so much for helping to create a better tomorrow via what you're doing. Well, thank you. I really appreciate it. It was a, it was a great opportunity to talk about our work, and I appreciate the invitation. We'll follow up.